So I get up every morning and I am at work by 7.30 and I'm working till about three in the afternoon when I take a break and I come home and I work again. And sometimes I work seven days a week. I, I don't see any other way of doing this. You have to grow in your craft. You have to research and understand your marketplace. You have to constantly have new ideas and new inventory. So I think if you're not persistent, you're going to have a different kind of success. Welcome back to The Author Biz, the show that's all about the business of being an author. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and this is episode number 52. Wherever you are, however you listen, thanks for spending some of your time with me today. My guest today is Rebecca Forster. Rebecca, I first came across her work in 2004 with her book, Hostile Witness, which was the first book in the Josie Bates Witness series. I loved the character, loved the book, bought the next two, and kept them on my shelves, as you'll hear during the interview, for a long period of time. But the series and Rebecca, in my mind, sort of disappeared off the face of the earth for a while uh, until she was back. As authors, I'm sure you know what happened. Her contract was canceled, the series was dead, and there weren't going to be any more books. And then self-publishing came along, and the series was revived, renewed, and we got new books. The fans of the series got new books. About 18 months ago, I had the opportunity to interview Rebecca for a show I was doing called Murders, Mysteries, and Mayhem. And at that time, she had re-released... Hostile Witness, the book that I had originally bought back in 2004, and was running it as a freebie in at Amazon. And it was the number one overall legal thriller in all of Amazon. So here we are in August of 2015, you know, roughly 18 months later. Hostile Witness, again, originally published in 2004. It was number one 18 months ago, overall, in Amazon in legal thrillers. So I went in to check this morning to see where the book was. It's plummeted all the way to number two overall in legal thrillers, as of this morning, August 2nd. So we're going to be talking about that today. The idea, the value of making the first book in your series free. But we get into a number of other topics. Things like the value of finding and sticking to a genre. Uh, closely tracking the rights to your traditionally published books, which Rebecca did, which allowed her to get the rights to those books back and to self-publish them. Uh, creating and following a fairly rigid work schedule. Then we'll get into book marketing, where we'll break down the results of her recent BookBub campaigns, breaking it all the way down to pretty specific returns on investment. There's plenty more that we're going to cover during the interview, including one of the funniest stories we've ever had on the podcast, where Rebecca is in her office, she's scanning some books, and, and you just have to hang on. You'll love it when you get to it. Real quick, a couple things that you might find interesting before we get started today. The most recent episode of The Taylor Stevens Show, which is a podcast that Taylor and I do together, uh, which you can find at both Taylor's website, taylorstevensbooks.com, and at the crimefiction.fm website. The latest podcast is on the myths and misunderstandings. Try saying that five times really fast. The myths and misunderstandings of successful traditionally published books. 
If you are or want to be traditionally published, you might find that one interesting. So again, taylorstevensbooks.com or crimefiction.fm. And lastly, we talk from time to time about author websites on this show. There are some simple things that guests like Jane Friedman, Joanna Penn, and others have spoken about on the show that I completely agree with. Things like making it really, really, really easy for visitors to sign up to your email list. Obviously, there's the importance of the email list. And building an SEO-optimized website on your own domain using WordPress to make it as simple as possible to make changes and keep your information up to date. Your website as an author is one of the cornerstones of your author business. With my work at CrimeFiction.fm, where I interview a number of authors each week uh, with new release crime fiction books, I'm exposed to a lot of websites. A few of those websites are really good. A few of them are really terrible. And there are, I don't know, maybe the majority that could be a lot better with some simple changes. Website optimization is something I've been focused on for years in my business life, and it's an interesting subject to me. But I don't know whether it is to you or not, so I I don't want to spend a lot of time on it unless it is. If having your website work harder for you is something you're interested in learning more about, then please pop over to theauthorbiz.com slash author website and sign up for the new email list that I'm starting today. I've got some information I'll be sending out to that list over the course of the next couple of weeks. Now, let's get on with it. Here's USA Today best-selling author, Rebecca Forster. Rebecca, welcome to the Author Biz. Hello. Good to talk to you again. Let's get right into it. Uh, can you tell me one thing that you do that you feel has been the biggest contributor to your success so far as an author? Yes. Um, actually, I think it is purely persistence. And that means treating writing as if it's a business. Um, I came from a corporate background and I was used to juggling a lot of different balls all the time for my clients. And that work ethic fell right over into, um, into writing. And basically, I look at this as a, my business, as if I am running a small business. I have to create the product that I want people to like and to read. Um, but I also have to sell that product. I have to make the product pretty. Um, and to do all that, I have to attend to it like it is a business. So I get up every morning and I am at work by 7.30 and I'm working till about three in the afternoon when I take a break and I come home and I work again. And sometimes I work seven days a week. It's, it's, I I don't see any other way of doing this. You have to grow in your craft. You have to research and understand your marketplace. Um, You have to constantly have new ideas and new inventory. So I think if you're not persistent, you're, you're going to have a different kind of success than I probably did. Um, I was always focused on wanting to make my living this way, not as writing as a hobby or writing as, you know, extra income. This was what I do for a living. So in order to do that, I had to nurture it just as I would if I was opening a storefront and wanting people to come in and look at my wares. 
Now, to, to give listeners a little sense of your writing background, and I don't know the full extent of your writing background, but I started buying your Witness Series books back in 2004, and I right. still have paperback copies of the first three of those on my bookshelf. And there was a period of time, I mean, the first three came out fairly quickly. Right. And then there was a period of time where there was nothing. But but I kept these books on my bookshelf because I wanted to search. I didn't want to miss the next book. So every three or four months, I'd go and do a search. Is there a new book? Is there a new book? Is there a new book? And eventually there was. Uh, so can you give listeners a sense of how your career changed with digital publishing and what caused the lag between traditional publishing and then more books? Sure. Um, actually, too, it's funny. I think everybody focuses on the Witness series because that's the one that's most visible to the consumer. Um, I have been writing since 1987, actually. And so I had I have quite a backlist. I've written 30. I think I'm now in my 35th book. Um, and I have a, a really big backlist. And when the Witness series hit, I felt I was in a good place craft wise. Uh I had started writing women's fiction. I really wasn't wasn't as engaged in that. I had always wanted to write thrillers and especially legal thrillers. It was a tough transition because the editors felt, since I wasn't an attorney, that would be a tough call. But I did have an editor who finally said, oh, we really like this. Let's run with it. That editor then left for another place, and I was, as they say, orphaned. Um, within Penguin Putnam, and I was assigned to another editor who did not particularly like the Witness series and was not happy with its performance in terms of the bottom line. And that's what writers must understand, that large traditional publishers, they have a bottom line and they have huge overhead. So you can't just say, oh, I had a bad month, you know, this month or a bad year, but I was really creative. Those people need to make money to pay sales forces. And so I was not, I was not, I was not happy that they didn't want to renew the witness series, but I completely understood that if it wasn't pulling its weight financially, then there was no reason for them to purchase additional books. Let me break in with a question here, Rebecca. Sure. Um, you mentioned an editor change, and I hear this over and over again, where there's an editor change and the editor's not happy with the performance, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, what you're, what you're saying right. happened to you. How much do you think the editor change itself had to do with that? Uh, meaning, if you had the same editor, do you think the series might have extended with your publisher a few more books? Yes, I do. Um, and the reason being, the first editor was so invested in it that I believe she would have found promotional dollars, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, because she liked it so much. The new editor uh, had her her authors that she wanted those promotional dollars to go into. They're finite. They, you know, uh, new authors especially anticipate that, oh, their book will be promoted and they'll be going on signing tours and doing all this. And I learned very early on that was not the case. The mm -hmm. promotional dollars go where the sales already are or the publisher believes the big sales will be. And so I think had the original editor, because the advance was substantial enough that there should have been promotional effort, you just don't you know, give out that kind of advance and let something languish. But it, this is a subjective business. You know, I realize I am not writing the great American novel 
every time I'm writing entertaining novels that are commercial that I hope have some literary value. But I have to be very clear that my work is only one of thousands of books that go through an editor's desk every year. So all I can do is my best, write my best, and hope she likes it. If this is not her cup of tea, I'm not going to get those dollars that would buy me those ads, you know, in USA Today or additional space in the bookstores. So yeah, I do think I do think being orphaned is a is a tough road for authors and. When that happens, my advice to them is you pick yourself up, you listen to your new editor, you do what you think will work with them, and you do 10 times more on your own in terms of promotions. And you try to make your numbers so good that she'll sit up and take notice. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. When the last Witness book came out, digital wasn't quite here yet. And where were we? What what year was it when when you were orphaned? Two thousand. I'm going to guess 2007 or so. I was actually orphaned two weeks after that series was signed. Get out. No, she left two weeks after finishing the contract. And that left me with a new editor who had to honor the next two books. Wow. So it was a it was a long two years because I, you know, I knew within a month or two that this was not, this was not happening for her. So it was, yeah, it was a hard two years and or, or three years. It was 2007 when the last one came out. And at that and, point, how many books had you written that had been traditionally published? Oh gosh, I think I'd done 15 okay. at that point. And, uh, keeping counsel had been a USA today bestseller and, uh, a number of other books had been, you know, if you remember the name Walden's, Walden's List. I, you know, I was doing really, really well. And and I thought the Witness series, my craft quotient had really jumped up. I, I was very proud of these books. I thought they were spot on and the start of something really big. And, you know, fate just stepped in. But but look at this silver cloud. There are silver lining to my cloud. So after Penguin Putnam declined, I, I told my husband, I said, you know what? I'm really tired, and I think I'm going to retire um, because distribution channels were, tr- were drying up. It was getting harder and harder for even high mid-list people to get real estate in the bookstores that were left. Um, the grocery stores were consolidating. All this stuff was happening. If you if you watched the market change in terms of publishing, you saw that it was it was constricting to a point where I thought, I, I, "Am I too old to bat my head against this wall?" Mm-hmm. And then it was my husband who who ran across this Kindle thing, and <laughs> and I kind of you know oh, that blew, thing. <laughs> yeah, I sort of blew him off. I'm like, I don't know anything about computers, and nobody seems to know what this is, and. Then he sent me a link and I started looking at it and I, for some reason, and I would like to caution your listeners, always, always, if you're traditionally published, get your rights reverted as soon as you can. For some reason, and I never knew why, that was a big stickler with me. Every time my contracts were up and my rights were available for reversion, I got them. I have friends who did not do that and they have some of my romance reader writer friends have 75, 100 books they will never, 
ever get back and be able to control and benefit from in the digital age. That's an entire career that is still locked into contracts just because they forgot or didn't see a reason to ask for their rights to be reverted. So, so I ha- so I'm you sorry. got you got the rights back and to, to some or all of your books. And then what did you do? What was the first thing you did in this new digital world? <laughs> the first thing I did was tear them apart and try to scan them myself. <laughs> oh my God. It was it was pitiful. I would be sitting in my office scanning and crying. Oh, I was scanning and crying because I didn't know what I was doing. Oh, that is try- so sad. It is. It was pathetic. And so then I tried to put them together in a file, and then I thought I had learned how to upload them, and I uploaded them. And if you look at some of the early reviews, he'll say, oh, my gosh, there's so many mistakes in this book. I couldn't even read it. This this author should be shot. And, and, and I... I never realized that the scan, there were scanning errors. I thought it just scanned exactly what was on the page. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I never want to go back to those days again as long as I live. It was just horrid, and I tried to make my own covers because I didn't own the rights to the cover art. And it was just, it was just, and finally, my husband, after days of just hearing me weep, he finally said, Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. (laughs) And I'm just that kind of person. I was like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And of course, it all worked out well. It got easier because, you know, Kindle and Smashwords all got, they, they made it easier for us to understand how to do things. But I still am a big proponent of finding a team. It is well worth the money you're going to spend to find a good team to help you do this. So anyway, eventually I got things going. Um, And I did discover, and I want to share this with your readers if they don't know, and they do have books they've written that were backlist books. Um, There's a company called, can I say a company name? Sure. Okay, there's a company called Blueleaf, blueleaf.com. All right, I'm breaking in here for a quick editorial correction. The actual website address for Blueleaf is www.blueleaf-book-scanning.com. I'll have a link to Blue Leaf in the show notes at the authorbiz.com website. Now, let's get back to the show. Love them to death. B-L-U-E, like the color, L-E-A-F? That's correct, Blue Leaf. Mm -hmm. And you can send them a a hard copy. You can send them an old typed-up manuscript, whatever it is, and for like 25 bucks, they scan the darn thing. They send it back in Word form and PDF. You can make your changes. Go look for scanning errors. It's done. It's fantastic. $25 saved my marriage. So, <laughs> so uh, Blue Leaf is, is uh, one, of those, one of those things that's just indispensable. And I had actually taken one book down to my local um, FedEx Kinko's thing. They're like, oh, sure, we can scan this. And I had told them I wanted to be able to work on it. But they, those places only scan to PDF. Mm-hmm. And that's very important to know. And it was also $70 to scan there. And I got a PDF that was unusable. So Blue Leaf is really what you want. Now, when you say you send them a book, do you mean you actually send them a physical book? 
I do send them a physical book and I, and you check a little thing that says, can I tear this up or do you need it intact? It's more expensive Mm -hmm. if you need it back intact. So I just say, tear it up because I have enough of my old inventory. That's amazing. Yeah. They tear it up. They scan it. It 25 bucks. 25 bucks. It was now they may have gone up a little more, but Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I use them for, uh, um, just a typed manuscript. I had an old one and I think they charged me 30. It was a lot, a lot of pages. Um, and then I got it back and I started reading it and realized, Oh my gosh, don't ever publish this thing. So, (laughs) so you'll, it'll never see the light of day. It wasn't worth the paper it was printed on to begin with. Um, all right, well, let's talk about uh, this catalog of yours now, essentially, because you, You're writing new books. Yes. You you have some backlist stuff that you have published. You have more backlist stuff that you're going to be publishing. Right. Um, it sounds like you're busy all the time. And for people uh, who you, – you mentioned earlier that you start to work at 730 in the morning. You actually started – we started recording this morning at 6 in the morning. So yeah. uh, take her literally when she's talking yes. about hard work. <laughs> yeah. But where do, you, where do you find the time to do it all? Where do you find the time to do all of this? You know, I'm really lucky and and – in that I was able to transition from a corporate career into a writing career. And I am not going to say it was easy there early on, you know, the money was, was spotty. I will say that, but it is definitely possible with planning. And I knew that I had wanted to work for myself and writing seemed to be the way to go. And the, the way I gauged it was, had I gone two years with a certain amount of success? Yes, I had. So, okay, now I can start thinking about transitioning. So I transitioned from um, a traveling kind of position that I did corporately where I traveled a lot and I had my kids and everything. And, and I transitioned into something closer to home where I had more time to write. And I slowly finally made the move into, um, into full-time writing. But once I made that transition, now the onus was on me to make my income. And you don't do that by thinking, oh, how creative can I be today? I need to listen to my Zen music. You do that <laughs> by, by creating a, a format within which you can work. And for me, that was sort of a corporate environment. I don't work at home. There's a coffee shop I've been going to for 15 years now. They are so sweet. If people come looking for me, the baristas even take messages for me. It's like having my own staff. Um, I work down there because I, if I work at home, I'll do anything other than write or the business of writing. So I go down there. I sit, put in my earplugs. I write for a certain amount of time. First thing I do is my emails, answer any fans that have written, answer any problems I have with my my team who puts together my books. Um, I start writing exactly at nine or editing. I usually end that about two and I do another hour of media work, go home, do my chores. And I start again at night doing, you know, all sorts of things. Um, I make sure that if somebody needs an answer from me or there is an email, somebody wants to talk about my books, I answer them real time as soon as that email comes in. So I treat this like like a business, and I do that because at the end of the month, I want to see that paycheck that can pay my rent, that can you know take me on a trip, which is my passion, mm-hmm. traveling. Um, I this is a business, and when I talk to new authors, 
who say, I can't wait to live off my writing. It's like, that's good that you're writing, but it's not going to happen with your first book. And you have to be strategic about how you plan your, your inventory. Because I made a huge mistake early on in my career thinking it was just for fun. You know, when I started, I started because somebody dared me to. Mm-hmm. And I didn't start because I thought, oh, I'm a great writer. And found that I loved it so much, I wanted to pursue it. Well, I was jumping genres um, for probably the first 10 years. And then I wondered, why wasn't I successful? Why were people not coming back for my books? And it was mainly because they didn't know what genre I was going to be writing next. You know, once, once I started the thrillers, I think readers could see the passion I had for them. And I continued everything I wrote for, for then for 10 years was a thriller. And I established, I established myself. Let me ask you some specific questions um, okay. regarding your, your post-traditional publishing career. Um, so around sometime around 2008, maybe, you're crying in your office, scanning, <laughs> crying. Your husband's terrified that uh, the marriage is over. Yeah. Um, eventually, you, got, you, you made every mistake that a person could possibly make, and and this is a this is one I've never heard before the, the whole scanning thing and then just publishing it. <laughs> but you made every mistake a person could possibly mistake. But you finally a person could possibly make. You finally got it right, and eventually you started getting checks from Amazon. When did you get the first check? Do you remember? I oh I do actually. I got the first check. As soon as I put something up and it was the horrible scan. Really? Okay. I got, I was so thrilled. I got $57. (laughs) (laughs) It was, I mean, I I went, oh my gosh, they sent me $57. This is amazing. (laughs) And you have to realize the context of this, which is these books were priced at $2.99, full-size books priced at $2.99 that you had bought for $6.99. Mm-hmm. Um, at $6.99, the author got $0.85. Cents. At $2.99, <laughs> the author gets $2.02. Uh-huh. So I was just jazzed. And then, of course, the problem started, and I had to get them fixed. But the first time I made substantial money, um, and so my husband is a huge part of this. He is my biggest cheerleader. And when, when something big happens, whether it's crying or happiness, um, he always seems to be there. And the day we checked to see what was going on in, one, in a certain month was the month I gave away Hostile Witness free. So Okay, let little little background. Okay. Hostile Witness is the first book in the Josie Bates series. Josie Bates oh, yeah. is what we were talking about before. Hostile Witness is the book I have sitting in front of me that I bought in paperback. So that's a first in the series free idea. So, Correct. all right, you gave that away for free. That is first in the series, and it's now a seven-book series. It was a three-book series. I resisted giving away free. One thing I did do that I'll be forever grateful for is I went on the Kindle boards and I met other authors. I think this is critical. To meet other authors, it's not like the old traditional days when authors played things very close to the vest because they were worried somebody was going to take their their space in a traditional publishing house. These days, authors are very forthcoming, and and I am too. I want people to know what I did and what succeeded and what didn't. Um, And there was a gentleman in New Zealand who befriended me, another thriller writer, who has since passed away. And 
we had these long conversations about, gee, what, you know, what really works out here? It's such a big universe. And he says, give your first book away free. And I <laughs> I remember saying, I'm not giving anything away free. I worked <laughs> too hard on this. Mm-hmm. And he goes, give it away free. Finally, the third time he said, what is your problem? Give it away free. And he was so upset with me. So I went, what have I got to lose? So I gave it away free. Literally, that from that morning when it hit to the second day, 80,000 books have been given away. And... 24-hour period, it sounds like. 24-hour period, 80,000 books. I couldn't believe it. And I had no idea what it was going to mean to the rest of the series, and that's the hard thing about free is free means a couple of things. Probably two-thirds of the people don't even read it. They Mm -hmm. just love the idea of free, and they put it on their Kindle that can hold 1,500 books, and you will be lost forever. But there's another 20%. Will that 20% like it? Of that 20%, how many will then go on to your next book? Well, as luck would have it, people liked the first book. They went on to the next book and the next book. To date, I've given away over 2.5 million copies. Um, that is a lot of giveaways. But but what it has brought back to me and what makes me always try to write a better book is that those people who do like my work they are incredibly loyal and they come back and they come back and they come back looking for more. And so I never want to disappoint them because they gave me a shot. You know, they, they took that free book. They didn't let it disappear into their Kindle. They read it. They invested in the character and it it has been an awesome ride, but free doesn't work unless you have inventory to back it up. And now, I will when talk. you when you started your free, did you did you only have two other books, two other witness books? Two other witness books was it. Yeah. And, but I, and, I had all my standalones, but the free did not translate into standalone sales. So, and, and thank you. That's a good point. It's a question I had yeah. on my list. But, um, so you had three books. The month before, just ballpark, the month before you did the free thing, how much did you make from Amazon? A month before I was making, I think every month I was making about $1,200. Okay. And then the month after. And that's with three books. That's pretty... I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> okay. It was a lot more. Correct. And my standalones. But all right, here's what I'm going to tell you now, though, before everybody all, I mean, yes, that was, that was absolutely astounding. And and I, that was about five, six years ago. Yeah, that was then, and, and things are different now. And this now. is now. Yes. And this is now. And this was also the time, you remember Conrath, he was making mm-hmm. 100000 a month. Yep. And there, there were a number of people who were doing that. There are a couple things to consider. One, these books people considered to be good books. They, they did not, they, and that's because I was trained really in New York. So these were full-size you know, 110,000 word novels. Yeah, written, written for a commercial market. Exactly. And uh, that attracted buyers like me, uh, such right. so and loyal that they would sit them on their bookshelves and wait for the next book. This was not magical realism, which was hard to find, a, you know, the, um, the readers. You know, this was not a narrow marketplace. Now, let's fast forward a little bit and... That doesn't happen anymore, um, unless you have something like Fifty Shades of Grey or 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 Twilight or something like that. 
I am not saying it's bad. It is still substantial and a great way to make a living. But here's two things that happened. And this is why I always encourage creative people to also become business people and to look at the market. Two things happened. Early on, indies were a curiosity. And the indie with a traditional background was considered a safer bet. So my marketing always mentioned that I was traditionally published so that people understood they were probably going to get a a pretty good product Um, because just psychologically that traditionally published does carry that connotation. The other thing that happened was early on, the big guys wanted nothing to do with digital publishing. So, you know, HarperCollins, uh, you know, all those fights that were going on Mm -hmm. about price fixing and all this other stuff, that that cloud layer lay up above what was happening below. And what was happening below is readers were just having a field day with Kindle, indie publishing. Everything was new. Everything was fun. We're trying everything we can try. It's only $2.99. I'm going to click on it. I'm going to buy it. That's settled down now. That, that has all settled down. Yes, people still do click when they like something, but not with that frantic speed they used to. They're much more discerning now. They have gotten over the thrill that can, that the e-readers once were. You know, Now they're saying, gee, we also like traditional books. Maybe we like a little of both. And the other thing that happened was um, they read, read too many indie books that were really not well-crafted. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and I, I take my lumps for my scanning nonsense. But <laughs> you may have been the start of that whole thing with those uh, scan maybe books. Maybe I was. <laughs> um, but it certainly taught me a huge lesson, huge um, in terms of, of making clean books. But bottom line, anyone can publish. Thousands and thousands of books are going up. And I hear all the time from people, why isn't my book selling? Well, it's not selling because maybe they're reading the 20%. We give readers 20% to read free to see if they like it before they ever spend any money. Is that 20% you're giving the readers to read? Is it the best you can do? Is it filled with expletives? Is it, you know, um, is it unable to establish for the reader exactly what genre book they're reading? So there's lots and lots of questions. When I teach, the first thing I teach is, Let's decide what genre you're writing in because the digital bookstore is exactly like your neighborhood bookstore. People go and say, I want a romance. If you tell me that your book is a wonderful creative effort that combines four genres, you won't (laughs) be able to sell it to anyone because Mm -hmm. they won't know what it is. So, So there are a lot of things at play here. I'd love to think I sold so much because I was incredibly brilliant. (laughs) Um, I think it was more that my friend urged me to give a book away free to introduce myself to people, that I was lucky enough to have a book that people liked and wanted to see more of, and that I was at a time before the giant publishers came in and started offering John Grisham at a special at $1.99. You know, the competition was different. So... It is still possible. It's just new writers have to understand how hard you have to work to keep up this really good level where you're actually making a living at it. You 
you have to work hard. All right. Let me let me ask you one more question about this, and then we'll we'll go off into team building because you mentioned okay. that a little while ago. Yeah. Um, let, let's spin forward. Um, five or six years from when that first happened. Uh, the last Josie book was 2014, and that was... Dark Witness. Dark Witness. Okay. Um, at, that was the seventh book. You were right. still giving away the first in the series free, and I think that was something that you had given away free and then and then taken away and then made free yeah. again. So it, it was free again. Then you have this seventh book in the series... Uh, sort of compare and contrast releasing the seventh book in 2014 with maybe re- releasing the fourth book when there was this huge pent-up demand, presumably from people like me, in maybe, was it 2012? Yeah, yeah. The um, the seventh book, um, in fact, it's funny because I still have my agent. He doesn't deal with he only deals with foreign rights. That's right. He was the one that told me, really, a series shouldn't be more than three or four books. Well, unfortunately, there were loose ends on these characters I felt I needed to tie up. And, of course, as we get into seven books, I'm I'm losing readers. There are some who love, you know, they'll go three and then they'll tire of the characters. And, and so what I have at book seven is a real core group of witness series, Josie Bates lover people myself included. Um, And so we are totally invested in her journey and the journey of those she loves. Um, But like with anything else, it's like eating too many M&Ms. At some point, you put away the M&Ms and you go on to, you know, good and plenties. By the seventh book, people were, I don't think they were tired of it. I just think there's so much to read that they weren't seeking it out. Uh, as quickly. But what I saw, I put it up for pre-order, and what I saw was was the core group really rallying behind. And it's a stair step. So you'll see books one through three retaining interest of new readers. Books four and five will see about a drop of about a third. And by the time we get to six and seven, we're we're dropping another probably I don't know, 10%, 20% of readers. Um, the numbers the numbers work out. It, it's like just like a stair step. One, two, and three, four, five, six, seven. And, and that's to be expected, and it, it's not upsetting. The only upsetting thing is I think, like Forgotten Witness, I think is a really good book, and I'm sorry people won't, you know, won't see that, but they may come back. You just never know. Yeah, I actually think that's one of the best in the series. Thank you. Personally. Yeah, I loved I loved doing that one. That was a lot of fun, um, just from a standpoint of research. But yeah, series are going to fall off. There's nothing you can do about that. But I try to refresh the series by um, running an ad, ads uh, for Hostile Witness as free about every six months. And... And, so, and when you say running an ad, are you talking about BookBub or something BookBub. else? Yeah, BookBub okay. is, is really the most effective in my mind. I've tried quite mm-hmm. a few others. There are some specialty sites uh, that are not expensive that I also run with, um, but but few. But BookBub is really the one that if you want to launch, to me, that's the launch pad right there. Um, and and how, how much does it cost you to run a, a BookBub ad for a free book? A BookBub uh, is very interesting. Uh, they price it based on the pricing of your book. So if mm-hmm. I were to you to target the thriller uh, readers in BookBub 
and I wanted it to go at full price, which was over $1.90, or I think it's over $2.99, $2.99 and up, it would cost $1,200. If I run it wow, free- Wow, it's that much now. Yeah, if I run it free, it costs one hundred and seventy for 470,000 readers. So it makes a huge difference. And, and my, so you my, you track all this stuff. What happens after you? What happened after the last BookBub ad for one hundred and seventy dollars? The average BookBub download now is between thirty and forty thousand people. And and what kind of bump did you get within the series? Like say the second book was it the most obvious in the second book? Oh yeah, yeah. The whole series gets a huge bump after a BookBub ad. Yeah, that, I, no. I I say I say I probably. Um, Probably I get about 10% uh, within the first month. I get 10% of those downloaders. and uh, 3,000 then. Yeah. And of that, of that, I'll probably get maybe, you know, uh, anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people who follow it all the way through. So if, and just, just doing the numbers in my head, I, I don't remember how, exactly how you price all your books, but if they're Two ninety nine. If it's two ninety nine for the second book, and you get ten percent of thirty thousand, you're getting another six thousand. You're you're getting a return of six thousand dollars for your hundred and seventy dollar investment. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And again, caution being, a you have to have more inventory. That doesn't right. mean more. You know, a, a women's fiction here and a thriller there. It means that you have to have something people like to follow up with. And remember, I also add into each book, at the end of each book, it's formatted so that all, so the people who download the free one, mm-hmm. they get the free one. As soon as they're done reading that, the very next line is read Silent Witness now. In Silent Witness, it's read Privileged Witness. And, and there is, and click right here. If you like it, you go get it. So they get the next chapter free of the next book and they have all the books listed and all the books are linked. And, you know, you make it as easy as easy as possible for that reader to see all your work, to click on all your work. And it's just a matter of, it's like having someone to your home for dinner and making sure the forks and knives are there with the plates. (laughs) And you, you just want, so running a free ad has a strategy to it. Making a book free has a strategy. I did go with Kindle Select for about a year, and I saw my income drop drastically. This is not always the case. I have other friends who went with Kindle Select, and their income rose drastically. Mm -hmm. Mine did not. So I now just recently took everything back, went back to Smashwords to distribute to iBooks and Barnes & Noble, etc., so you don't do that yourself. You don't you don't go to the other uh, distribution no. arms yourself. You go through Smashwords for that. I go through Smashwords. I, I originally went through Smashwords. Um, I did try uploading to Barnes and Noble on myself and trying to keep all that. Oh my gosh, it was just it was just too much. At some point, you mm-hmm. have to say what's most important: writing and then doing the marketing where I'm actually talking to people, which is the fun thing for me. I like that. To try to keep track of iBooks, which has a different format, and BNN, which has a different format, and Kobo, all this stuff, that just got to be too much. I started with Smashwords. I love Smashwords. They're incredibly responsive. There are some glitches. There always are in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love how responsive they are to me. I love that they actually know what I'm doing. And um, 
will discuss strategy with me. They're, they're fantastic. And I know that my books get out. I send them one format and they do their meat grinder thing and it satisfies everyone. So yeah, I do Smashwords and then I do Amazon on my own. Okay. All right. So this is a great transition point to get to your team. Okay. And it almost sounds like Smashwords is an integral part of your team. They are. They are. And so, you know what? So is Amazon. Amazon is the same kind of responsive. I, I remember seeing this thing. Do you want to call us to call, call you? A little thing. So it was email, whatever, whatever. And do you want us to call you? And I'm like, they're going to call me? So I said, <laughs> sure, call me. Put in my phone number. Before I even put in the last digit, it seemed, there was Amazon on the phone. Now, this was early on, trying to help us understand formatting, and there was someone helping me. It, it was really good. I have no complaints. These people at both Amazon and Smashwords, I understand that they're going to make money from me, but you know what? They've given me an opportunity I never thought I'd have. So I think it's a great teamwork um, among all of us, and new authors should take advantage of that, you know, be respectful of it and don't, don't expect them to be your marketing arm, but certainly they're there to help you as best they can. And, um, I, I've been very impressed, but as, as this business grew and I started seeing it really was going to take off and I was probably in this for the next 20 years, as opposed to thinking I was retired and it was going to be a Mm -hmm. hobby. Um, Mm -hmm. I did gather a team because I had done as much as I could do. As soon as I started making money, I realized that my covers were not the best. And so I started experimenting with cover designers. And that's a very hard thing to find someone who not has your vision for your covers, but will be able to tell you when you're wrong about your vision. I, to find it, it very tough. Um, I have one guy in England I just love. Unfortunately, he got really busy with he's building a house. And so this next series that's coming out, I had to find someone new. And it was actually my freelance editor who knew this graphic artist. And he and I ended up working really well together. And between the two of us, we came up with covers I just adore. And I'm so proud of them. And then I did redo all the Witness series. And I went through Create Space. Incredibly professional they're expensive. No two ways around it. But how much? Uh, they ended up, I think, being three thousand dollars. For all seven for all seven books, books? seven books. Okay, yeah. that, that's not terrible. No, and the covers the covers are great. Covers- and I I will say I I may be in the minority because I'm in the Rebecca Forster fan group on Facebook. And when you when you redid the covers of the Witness series, uh, the time before that in, with black and white pictures, yeah. I, I think, I, I don't know whether I said, I probably didn't because I'm not the kind of person that would say that, but I, I wasn't crazy about them. And there were a lot of people that really liked them. And I just like, wow, I, I really don't like these covers. I don't think they get the point of the series across. And they didn't last very long. Well, they didn't because I did them myself. And, you know, it was, you do realize early on what you can and can't do. I, mm-hmm. I'm a good writer. I think I'm a really good marketer. Um, I am a lousy graphic artist <laughs> and, and also, um, create space was wonderful in that they're like, look, you know, you need that smaller size. So it looks like the kind of book that people are used to. And I had made them the larger size because I didn't want people to spend a lot of money 
or, you know, I wanted to keep the price down on real books because people who like real books, it was a seven book series. I didn't want them to go broke. And I was counseled that, you know what, people who like real books, they're going to buy real books. That's just all there is to it. So make them in a size that is comfortable to hold. And I think they did a smashing job on, on these, uh, these books. They, they are just incredible. So once I saw them, once I saw what really could happen, I realized that's where I'm going to have to put a lot of, of effort into covers. What, what else about your team? So you've got, you've got cover designers and you've sort of gone through some, some different variations of that. Right. Who, who else? Smashwords and, and Amazon are, are sort of a part of your extended team. They are. What else do you have? But my my close, to, close to my heart team are, um, I have Steph, who is the formatter in England. He is, and I got him because I was working on a bundle with four other authors. Mm-hmm. And um, he did the bundle formatting and I thought he did such a great job. And I was so happy that he actually did take on individual clients. And um, so now I work with him. He is, oh my gosh, nothing phases him when it comes to formatting, nothing. He's just wonderful. And that, that has taken such a load off my mind because I, that was always would bring me to tears. And I don't cry that easily, but formatting did. And it's, it's troubling. It <laughs> the whole formatting it, thing, it's the kind of thing that just makes you want to pull your hair out, scream, and then start crying. And then you want your readers, you don't want your readers saying, I couldn't really read it because the paragraphs were all screwed up. You want yeah. your readers to be able to read your story. And so he's great. I think he's, I think he's very reasonable. Um, He's a hundred, let's see, it's in pounds. So he's like 95 pounds, which is about $110 or something. But he does the TOCs in the front and the back of the book. He links all my backlist. I mean, he just does beautiful type. He, he actually notices if I'm missing something and goes to another one of my books and pulls it out and puts it in. The guy is just super professional, um, just super duper. And will you email me uh, his information so that I can link to him in the show notes? Yeah, I'll, I'll actually um, send you all my people's information because okay. they are such a great team. Now, my freelance editor, I have actually been working with her for, for 20 years as I have the lady who does my public relations. Um, but the reason I did was I started with her really early on because I didn't know what I was doing with New York. And so I would pass things through her and she was just starting out too. So I would pass things through her and say, do you think this is ready to go to New York? And I swear it was because I took that step of showing it to, you know, a freelance editor that it was bought at in New York because it was, it was clean, you know, it was a good mm-hmm. story. And, and so I, it, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I used an editor before I had an editor, but it, for me, it worked out because I didn't have a great back then. I didn't have a great idea of where my strengths and weaknesses were. And this is Jenny Jensen. She's out of New Mexico. And I met her in San Francisco actually. And now I just, she is in my mind, and I know other of her clients too say this, um, one of the best content editors I have ever seen, she just cannot where the problems are going to be. What doesn't make sense? Where I've been lazy. She goes, oh, you got tired here. 
go back and do it again. I mean, I love that. She Yeah, that is so important to have that kind of relationship with someone, especially uh, when when you've had it uh, over time. Yeah. And so she is she does she also do your proofreading or is that somebody else? No, no, she does line editing also. Okay. But I mainly use her and and I do a lot of it myself now too because I will rewrite five or a book five or six times. I mean, I read and read and read until I can't stand it anymore. So I have her do line <laughs> editing, but I also have some beta readers who mm-hmm. take a look at it because I just don't think in, in those terms of, you know, looking for typos, et cetera, to, there can't be too many eyes on it. There just can't. Right. Um, we are all human, even editors. Okay. And you mentioned yeah. uh, a PR company. Oh, Creative Center of America. Oh my gosh. This woman is so brilliant. I love her. She's also transitioning into some really interesting stuff. She's just getting ready. This is Robin Blakely, and I would urge everybody to go look at her site because she is dedicated to writers and artists and nonprofits, and this is very unusual. She's not looking for canned goods. She wants (laughs) writers and artists, and Uh she has some of the most fascinating clients, Frank Dixon, who is a fantasy artist, another fine artist who just won an award in Barcelona. Um, she's just, she, I, I can't even begin to tell you how she has grounded me in. And um, early on, she, when I only had a few books, she actually managed to get me in three national magazines. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. That She has a voice like an angel. She can talk to anyone. But what I love about what she's doing now is she realizes that there are so many artists who don't have a lot of funds to spend on this. But what they they need to do, like I did early on, which was I needed to grow. And as I got money, then I put money back into the business as any business does. And so she's starting out, um, and it hasn't been launched yet, a three-tiered program for the newbie who only has a few hundred dollars to spend but needs to know how to focus their work for them individually, and then mm-hmm. another tier for to work one-on-one with someone outside of a group setting, and another tier to work one-on-one, and then the creative centers actually do the heavy lifting. So whatever you can afford, there's a place for you to learn the business of marketing your book. And I think that is fantastic because marketing is often so pricey, you just you can't get anything and you you're stumbling and you're losing time and i love what she's going to be doing i don't know exactly when that's going to be launching but it is perfect i mean really happy she's the one who um said you know you can't just tell people to buy your book you have to be an interesting person <laughs> and she says what are your passions well my two passions are traveling and and sewing i love to sew and so i ended up in a quilting magazine, but they ran pictures of my books. So Uh it, it wasn't as calculated as much as it was, wow, this is so cool. Somebody thinks it's neat that I sew and I write. And just recently, actually a couple days ago, she um, made me a a site. I'm going to be speaking at a conference in Palm Springs about traveling and the impact it has on your writing and marketing. And TripAdvisor just contacted me day before yesterday and asked me to write an article uh, because I'd been in Albania for five weeks um, on Albania for a Brazilian magazine. Now, 
how great is that to get publicity for myself as a writer by Mm -hmm. doing what I love? And it was Robin who showed me I had to not just define myself as a writer. I had to define myself as a person because this is what's going to make people sit up and take notice and and find what I do interesting. I'm going to find like minds, you know, in travelers and in seamstresses. Um, she once asked me, do you fly fish? And I had to tell her, no, I don't fly fish. <laughs> so so uh, if any fly fisher authors are out there. <laughs> <laughs> Call Robin. And I, I, will, I will link to uh, the Creative Center of America in the show notes. Now we've got one last thing. Yeah. You are in a unique position. Because you have, you've been writing for decades, uh-huh. and you know what it's like from your perspective, but you also have a son who's just published his first book. Yes. And so you know what it's like for him, from his perspective. Can you tell me a little bit, a little bit about what that's been like and how, you, how you're able to help him and, and maybe some ways that you're not able to help him that you thought maybe uh, you could have? Yeah, Eric is a, um, a, a shameless plug. His name's Eric Zulager and his first book. Spell it. Uh, I <laughs> C, C as in cat, Z as in zebra, U-L-E-G-E-R. <laughs> this is why I don't use that name on my books. <laughs> I will I will link to Eric's book. <laughs> oh, right. But uh, he just wrote Immortal L.A., and he's writing uh, magical realism, and he's doing a series that is just so out of my area of expertise. I, I had never read Neil Gaiman, but it's very Neil Gaiman-ish, if people uh-huh. know him. Um, and I am... I, he did a, a fabulous job, fabulous job. But he's been writing since he was 16. He's a, He was published at 16 when he was a playwright. He has written a number of plays. He um, just got representation for film, which is very exciting. But, of course, he loves novels. And I was thrilled he was going to write novels. He has quite a different sensibility than I do. And he is, his is not what I would call, you know, uh, accessible commercial fiction. You know, mine's a thriller is a thriller. His, mm-hmm. his work is intricate, uses the language in, in ways that I could never expect. But where I can't help is I don't know how to reach that market. It's, it's a young, hip, um, curious market. It, it has a language all its own. And not to say that there aren't readers who would love it. There are readers like myself who would love the language and, and love the creativity of this is based on the idea, it's a trilogy, the idea that the San Andreas Fault is actually the portal to hell and that the missions were built by God to seal it up and that immortals have escaped into Los Angeles. That's why it's called Immortal L.A. So you have, mm-hmm. you have stories like an angel comes down from heaven and she auditions for the part of an angel in a movie and doesn't get it. And, you know, these are just unusual things that you can't call commercial fiction. So I don't know how to help him on that end. The way I do know how to help him is to help edit his stories, make sure they're understandable, um, to encourage him to be, uh, you know, more uh, responsive to social media, to look into the book clubs, to find the areas where people who enjoy 
magical realism fantasy, you know, where they are. Now, of course, he works full time, too, and I remember those days. So it's easy mm-hmm. for me to say, hey, sit down and do this. But Yeah, spend an hour on social media. <laughs> exactly. And it's it's very tough. And so the good thing is where I have been able to help him is he does know how hard to work this is. And he always says that growing up, um, you know, it was good to see me working as hard as I did. I would come home from work, take care of them, and I'd go right at night, and it was it was a long slog. So he did get that creative work ethic, which is good. And the other thing that helped him is we were able to discuss the benefits of having um, a series as opposed to standalone books, because I know he was veering over to standalone, and standalone is just not you know, it's not getting the rate of return. I know he would like to stop working and write full time and that was not going to help him reach his goals. So, you know, together, luckily we have the same sensibilities in terms of what we think works and doesn't work creatively. And we've been able to really talk about his series and lay it out. And now he's going to publish book two, um, as soon as his mother gets finished reading it and editing it. For him. <laughs> um, but, but, that's the way I could help, which was by saying, let, let me tell you about pricing structure. Let me show you, you know, what's worked for me. Let's talk about the free strategy. As soon as you have at least three books, let's, you know, make sure that, you know, you know the difference between being in Kindle Select and perhaps also distributing through iTunes. iTunes, I thought might be better for him because he is young and you get a lot of young people going over there. So, it's been, there have been areas I can help him and other areas I can't. And bottom line, which he knows is it's really his hard work. He's got to stick to it. He's got to stick to it. And knowing him, he will, he's been writing so long and has so many plays. He just needs to take that work ethic and move it on over to novels. And, um, I have no doubt he's going to be successful. I just think he has to go through the same, you know, lean years that I that I did and every other author does. You I always tell people I'm the one that didn't go to the bar for the drink. <laughs> I'm the one that stayed home and, you know, sipped my Coca-Cola and wrote a book and uh, a lot of people say I'm going to write a book but they can't keep sitting in that chair long enough. So, sometimes it just boils down to sit in your chair and do it. And eventually you reach the point where you are, where you can go to Albania and sit in a chair and write a book and post pictures of that on your website. <laughs> I did, and I found Friends Book House, and, and you know, that was, that was a heck of an experience. At this stage of the game for me, I want to see as much of the world as I can, and I want it to inspire me to write other books and other characters, and I realize how narrow my vision is when I don't get out. And maybe that's the reason I go down to this coffee shop too, is because it's not a Starbucks. It's very eclectic. It's, it's, I don't know, it's something I would have gone to when I was maybe 14, but I see such a swath of wonderful human beings coming in and out that it's inspiring and exciting. So travel is not just about going off to Albania and I'm headed to Mexico in a few weeks and then to Germany with my 91 year old mom, you know, in October and, and I'll be in San Francisco at a teaching at a conference, uh, and, and all these things, you know, so exciting, but travel can just be get out of your house and walk to work and write about what you saw. I, I'm evangelical when it comes to traveling. I really am. (laughs) (laughs) 
Rebecca, it's always inspiring and exciting to talk to you. This has been an absolute pleasure. What's the best way for people to keep up with you and see these great travel pictures that you, that you post? And you're also, we didn't have time to get into this, you're also launching a brand new series that's something completely different. Yes. Uh, this, is, this information is available on your website. Yes. Uh, yes. Where, where should people go? People should go to RebeccaForster.com. It's F-O-R-S-T-E-R. Nothing fancy about Forster, just straight out, RebeccaForster.com. And if they're on Facebook, come on over and see us at Fans of Rebecca Forster, where Sherry made that great site, or my personal page, Rebecca Forster, or Twitter, Rebecca Forster. I was so lucky to get all those handles before anyone else did. Um, So, yeah, I love hearing from people. If any of your listeners have specific business questions that I can answer or I can at least, you know, give them my experience. I am so happy to answer them. Just send me an email through um, the website and I get back to you right away and be happy to help. I can attest to you that that is correct. So many authors have these forms on their websites that where you enter information and it takes two weeks to get a response. Nah. With you, it takes it takes uh, whenever it is you come up for air, you check your email and you respond. I sure do. And I also want to say the same thing. I will send you my team links and they also are... Uh, You know, I think that's why I like my team is because we all have the same attitude, which is, hey, cool, somebody wants to talk to us. You know, (laughs) we love it. It, And I I like working with like-minded people. And these are about the nicest, most professional people you will ever want to meet. So start with me. Start with one of them. Honestly, any questions, we are all happy to answer. Thanks so much, Rebecca. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephen. It's always fun. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time and knowledge today. For me, there are some big takeaways from this episode. The first in a series free thing is something that we've talked about from time to time. We know it works for a lot of authors. Uh, There's some debate as to how many books you have to have to make it effective. Obviously, one is not enough. Um, But it's interesting how well it's worked for Rebecca and continues to work for Rebecca in the Witness series. The other big takeaway for me was Rebecca's insistence on treating her work as work. It's not an art for her. It's not a hobby. She gets up each morning and goes to work. She may be going to work in a, in a coffee shop, but she's going to work. She does the same thing whether she's in Albania or in California, and she's been doing it for years. Hey, if you like what we're doing here on The Author Biz and you want to support the show, please pop on over to iTunes and give us a rating or review. And remember, if you're interested in getting more from your website, go to theauthorbiz.com slash authorwebsite and sign up for the email list. Have a fantastic week in your author business, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening.